you probably find yourself from everything you really accumulated over your lifetime. And that's not only toxins that you get in through the food. These are also toxins in your thoughts. So with the Taoist medicine, it's a lot about thoughts and your cultivation of your inner character. If you don't have that, and if you're an angry person and you pretty much hate the world or hate yourself, then there's no point to do it for 49 days or for 10 years. For most people, you just do whatever you do and you think it's right. But when you learn with Lishifu, it just tells you straight up when you have done something that is of any selfish nature. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Johan Hausen has lived a life that, if I had access to multiple lifetimes, would be one of the iterations I would want to play out. Replete with martial arts, Shaolin temple life, inner alchemy, classical Chinese culture and language, book translating and publishing, and travel, his life path weaves threads of modernity with ancient history. A crucial point in the journey for Johan came at the age 13 with the emergence of his interest in martial arts, specifically Taekwondo. After competing intensely for eight years, during the course of which he reached a plateau, he decided to elevate his interest by exploring the cradle of martial arts, Shaolin Kung Fu. From his home country of Germany and with no grasp of Chinese language, Johan traveled to the Shaolin Temple and eventually to the Wudong Mountains, where he adopted temple life and immersed himself in culture, philosophy, and techniques including Taiji, Dao Yin, alchemy, swordsmanship, feng shui, study of the I Ching, and Taoist healing. Now an acupuncturist in New Zealand, Johan annually returns to his Wudong Mountain Hermitage and he translates classical Chinese texts and publishes them under his own publishing house, Purple Cloud Press. Through the Purple Cloud Institute, he hopes to create a longevity center in Australia that makes widely accessible, time-honored healing practices. Johan's journey thus far has been incredible and so much more is yet to come. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Johan Hausen. Johan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Thanks for connecting with me today. You are involved in a lot of things that I'm very interested in, so I'm pretty excited for this conversation. And I thought we'd start with something that's very near and dear to me, which is martial arts. You have quite a storied past in martial arts, and I really just want to hear more about that, if you don't mind. Do you want the long version or the short version? Hey, we've got time. Let's go with the long version. So basically, I started with Taekwondo when I was 13, and pretty stereotypical, just because of a fascination with Kung Fu movies and Bruce Lee. And at that time the coach was actually uh, a classmate of my sister. So it just seemed the, seemed a good option at that time. And I liked the kicks. So I was familiar that Taekwondo was really placing a focus on kicks. And it's always something that you can show off rather than if you do judo or jujitsu where you have to take someone to the ground. And then I enjoyed it in the kids group. And then they wanted me to join the adults group. And I was still quite young. And at that time, I actually considered quitting because it was just too much of a change and sort of being with all the adults wasn't very enticing. 
I stuck with it and trained 10 years in total, mostly focused on competition. So once a month, twice a month, we would travel to a different city and have a, a tournament. And it was all paid for by the club, which was great tools. We stayed in hotels and then you would have two, three, four fights, depending on whether you're winning or losing. And my goal was really to make it to the Olympics, to be honest. And I was fortunate that, I was, that I'm quite tall. And so I was always the tallest. There was one time where I fought someone taller than me and was very, very unusual. And I made it into the national team, was nominated, but I actually had torn a tendon, so I couldn't fight in France. And then the second time I was supposed to fight in the Netherlands and I got really sick the day before, so I called it off. And the third time we were supposed to fly to Iran and then George W. Bush called it the excess of evil. So they didn't, they didn't consider it safe anymore to travel to, to Iran and um, yeah, missed a, missed a great chance. And I fought some really good guys. So I fought someone who won the European championship in 1998. And I, I almost won, like I, I had him knock, knocked out once and he came back up and he won it by decision. And I fought someone who came fourth in the Athens Olympics a really nice guy from from Austria actually and he was he was just a cut above me I had no chance whatever I was doing I was at some stage I was trying to kick him to the head and I found myself being kicked to the head and I didn't know what had happened so I had to check <laughs> the tape and it was absolutely amazing how he could read it and he the following Olympics he competed and he, he knocked someone out and this person had to be admitted to hospital with a they they were suspect suspecting internal bleedings in the brain somewhere Oh, wow. And he was he was really he was really affected by it. So he lost his next fight, and he said he just he just couldn't focus because he thought he, he may have killed someone. And at some stage, I did, then just felt I just plateaued. I had a, a serious injury for a year, and I couldn't really quite come back. It didn't didn't quite feel the same, and I was like feeling I needed to change. So I decided I needed to choose whether I want to go to Korea and do more Taekwondo or whether I want to go to China to do Shaolin Kung Fu. So I decided to go to the, what they call the cradle of all martial arts to go to China. Couldn't speak a word of Chinese, did some research, but not enough to enroll at a school and travel to China. Very interesting. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Germany in okay. a small town called Heidelberg, close to Frankfurt. Okay. And was there anything in particular that other than, as you said, you wanted to have some cool tricks to show off. But is there anything in particular that drew you towards martial arts in the first place? I don't think so. I don't think I was, I maybe was in it slightly for the self-defense, but I was, I was quite competitive. And I had done a lot of team sports, like um, soccer for a long time. And I, I think I just like to be just an individual. And it really became a family. I was there five, six times a week. And it was, it was, they were friends. It was just a great time. In the time I trained there, I didn't get injured once because we just were really respectful of each other. And so it, it's, it was a, it was a great time. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And then you went off to China. So I'm very curious about your experiences there. So I went to China and the first day I arrived there, it felt too much. No one could communicate with me. I was in the hotel, hotel room and I, I thought to myself, it was a mistake. How old were you, Johan? I was 19. Okay. And so I arrived, so they carted me off to a school where they had some foreigners so they could talk to me. And there was a school, I, I call them schools because I don't want to idealize or romanticize it. Even if you train in the temple, you train with the school. They just train in the temple grounds. You're not a monk. There's no school. There's no way for you to become a monk in Shaolin. So it was 
outside the temple, we went into the temple trained and there was four people training with me. And one of them pulled me to the side and was like, don't sign up with them because you pay in advance. And then you're pretty much stuck. He's like, it's terrible. The training is terrible. Don't stay here. And I trained there once, one training, which I really, which was okay, but I actually trusted him because it seemed to be overpriced. So they took me to another school. I talked to foreigners there and enrolled for two months, I think. And that was literally a school where all the kids live, they're taught English and they're trained eight hours a day. And pretty early into the training, I really ruptured one of my tendons in my ankles and um, I had to make a decision, do I stay or do I go home? And I could, just couldn't go home. I was just, it was too early and it, was, it would have felt like a defeat. So I stayed pretty much bedridden for a month and I watched, I think, 64 movies <laughs> and did any exercises I could really, but it was hard to stay sane because you could hear them scream outside and that's really what I had come from. And I would walk past them to go to the lavatory, to the loose every time. So once I could walk a little bit more properly, it was, it was a huge relief. And then I started training, but that school wasn't very good either. So I transferred to another school, which I then stayed for six months until I broke my finger. And the reason being really is why I broke my finger. I had some stomach issues from having caught a stomach bug and I never fully recovered. I could train, but I did have stomach cramps a lot. And I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. So I talked to my parents and they... They were fine for me pretty much training in Shaolin or I was in a nearby city called Dongfeng for eight years and then become a Kung Fu teacher. But my body really wasn't up for it. Like my knees were sore because of all the stomping on the concrete. And then I had to break my finger and I flew back on my birthday to have, a, have surgery on my finger. Hmm. So it sounds like that first almost year was a bit more bittersweet than it was sweet. A lot of challenges. Lots of challenges, but I, I still look back and I had a good time. Like I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say I was living the dream, but just training and seeing those kids doing like um, back somersaults on like a dirt ground and using like their skills were pretty amazing in, in terms of using a stick, using a cudgel, using a spear, like any, any, anything really. It was just interesting to watch and it was a complete different culture. So I was just immersing myself into it. And that was a pretty bold move in, in the first place, traveling to China and then deciding to study at Shaolin temples. Why that lineage specifically did you decide you wanted to focus on? Because that was the, the, the thing I was exposed to in Germany. We had shows and performances by the, by the Shaolin Kung Fu monks. I found out they're not monks. Mostly they come from little schools. And I didn't know much about sects and schools and different options for me. It was, let's go straight back to the basis, basis of, of Shaolin and check it out. And I knew I might speak to people and something else might open up from there. But I guess it was mostly ignorance. It wasn't like I had done the, I'd done some research about money and, and things like that. But first thing that happened, I arrived at the airport and I was overcharged, taking a cab like four times the price. And I just had no clue. <laughs> well, that happens in all parts of the world. <laughs> So you went home, you had your surgery, you were probably around 20 years old at that point in time where you kind of at a crossroads in life deciding what to do next, or did you know you wanted to go back to China? I knew I had to go back to, to sort of right the wrong and I left all my stuff in China. I actually didn't pay my last bill because I was like, I want to be back anyways and sort of used it as forcing myself to, and it took me much longer to recover. It took me a year until I felt comfortable for my stomach to go back. 
and I only went back for a month and a half to finish a form I hadn't finished a form as well and then I was enrolled at a university in London so I knew that I would straight go to London from after China mm-hmm. and when you say finishing a form what do you mean by that I had learned a so it's a sequence of movement of a nine section metal whip which I really liked and when I broke my finger I was halfway through and I guess I could have learned it from a friend or online but it felt I needed to go back and finish with my teacher a nine and, section metal whip what is that yeah so it's it, it consists of nine sections of metal and they're linked up it's a chain chain link and you you have to spin it so it, it turns sort of in a almost like a spear or a, a stick you could think of it of a very small like they're not nunchuck size they're, they're much smaller but it okay. becomes quite long and it has a very hard tip so you have to wrap up the tip because if you hit yourself you might really hurt yourself yeah how many times did you hit yourself I hit myself quite often on the temple, so it started swelling up at some stage. Oh, and wow. It, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't very nice so close to the eye. No. Okay. So you left, you went to university in London, you said? Yep. What was your focus there? Uh, it was, the course was called Film and Broadcast Production because I wanted to become a filmmaker. Okay. And basically, two years into, I had already realized this irregular lifestyle and income, being a freelance. Lancer, it's just not a good lifestyle. You never know how much you earn. And then I got an invitation by my friend Lindsay Wei, who I had met in Shaolin the first year and when I had returned. And she had traveled to Wudang and she found a teacher over there. So she invited me to a program which had opened to a foreigner for the first time in 2008. And I was like, I'm still on my course for another half a year. So I left no stone unturned, spoke to all the lecturers, and I said, I was pretty clear. I said to them, I'm going to. I'm going to go there anyways. And they set a precedence for me so I could still graduate. But at that time, I wasn't really so focused on the certificate on the paper. It wasn't so interesting to me. And so I bought my ticket. And a week before my flight, I thought I'd check the route again because it was a small airport by a company called Hong Kong Airlines. And it said the company had gone bankrupt a week before my flight. Oh, no. And I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a hacker on the site. So I checked in there like, yeah, it's right. And it turned out that people in Hong Kong were flown out back to their home countries, but not the other way around. Like you couldn't get the outbound flight, lost all the money. So I had to reassess and I was wondering whether there was a sign not to go or whether it was a sign to persist. So I persisted, bought a ticket the same day and flew out a week later. And what was your focus going to be while you were there? What was the intention? The intention was to run a six-month program, and it would be a comprehensive program, um, including Kung Fu, Tai Chi, Qigong, and Taoist healing, and sort of temple duties as well. So it was hosted in a temple. You were living in the temple on top of a mountain, which is Five Immortals Temple. Okay. So it sounds like a, a pretty well-rounded, immersive experience. Yes, that's why I really knew I had to do it. And I trusted Lindsay wholeheartedly. I didn't really have to. I didn't really ask many questions about the program. I just knew she was the right person to lead it and happy to go there and leave everything. Mm-hmm. And tell me about that experience at Five Immortals Temple. So we had a, um, it was very much external focused at the beginning. So we did a lot of Kung Fu, a lot of kicks. And I kind of felt at the beginning, to be honest, it was a bit of a watered down version of Shaolin. 
so I wasn't really too happy until we did push hands really. And then I was just blown away that someone who is half my size really had control over me, even though he didn't have to do anything. I knew he had me at any given, given stage. And it was actually quite an, um, an interesting day. It was really misty outside, really damp. And the wind was sort of blowing in the mist through the doors. And I was just like, well, I'm, I'm at a loss here. And then we ran into troubles with the Beijing Olympics. So they didn't extend any visas at all. So most of the people went home and some people, four of us enrolled in Sichuan in a language course just to get another visa, which I also did. So that was the only time I formally learned Chinese. And after that month, so they gave me a two month visa. So after one month, I actually went back to Wudang to train another month. And then I, it was kind of winter. So I went back home then. So I'd been in China for another six months overall. Okay. Tell me about push ends. I want to hear more about that experience. So push ends is, um, there's a lot out there in, on the internet. So it's, I definitely didn't experience anything that you see where someone slightly nudges you and you fly away and you sort of do a little dance with your feet. And I'm yet to, I, I'm yet to see that. I have very, very major doubts about that. But what it is really push ends, you're trying to push someone and the person, regardless of the size or the strength, they redirect the force. And I've seen that many times. You just don't get an angle. You're trying to, like my teacher, he's like a ball. And if you push a ball in the middle, you can push it. But as soon as you push the sides, you just slide off. And that's really what he does. He asks you to, put, to place your hands on his chest and to push. And then he just moves like a ball. It's like slippery. You just can't get a, a grasp of it. And that's really the essence of pushing. It's not the stuff where people use one finger and they redirect you in in one direction which you see on the internet and then likewise you have people just picking it apart and calling it bushido so as a martial arts a seasoned martial arts fighter i guess that was quite an experience for you especially to be matched with people smaller than you who could fully control you very much so but i so with my taekwondo background i'm good at kicking i think taekwondo kicks are the best kicks i have no boxing skills i'm honest and i have no street fighting skills and i would be lost because usually gets messy and usually people start swinging hands. You might be lucky to land a low kick, but Taekwondo is really not good for self-defense. Muay Thai or kickboxing is much, much better. And even with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you have problems if you're facing two people or once you have them on the ground, are you going to start just breaking their arms? You can control them on the ground, but the two people, you, you'll be at a loss too because the second person will attack you and probably try to boot you in the head. So I was, I was very, I was sort of, athletic but i wouldn't say i, I was i was a fighter I'm not, I'm not a fighter i had over 100 taekwondo fights but in a street fight i'll probably lose against most people yeah well i wouldn't want to fight you but <laughs> it's another story so you left again uh, continue on with this journey i'm i because i know there's a return and i want to hear there's more about a, it so there was a at the time i was in Wudang that first time, I met a couple of people who were studying acupuncture, just acupuncture. And I didn't know that was possible because I had looked at it two years prior to that, but just in Germany, I didn't look past the boundaries of my home country. And so I spoke to them and one of them gave me an, an email and I checked out all the schools and I, I knew I had to do it. And the other reason that I knew I had to do it was because a lot of the things that my teacher teaches, you can apply once you're qualified, but without the qualification, it's a little bit more tricky. You have to, you don't have indemnity. I don't want to say you need insurance for it, but you can, you can get away with a lot of things within certification. It's almost like you get a basic knowledge 
of TCM, and then you can do a lot of things on top of that. Let's say maybe you do some invocations or you do some something more Taoist medicine related and something you don't learn at university. It's better if you have your degree so people walk in the door and then you see who's up for it and who's available for these kind of treatments too. You might give them an invocation to recite at home and things like that. So I went home, I researched and I ended up in New Zealand for three years and I knew I wanted to go back to Wudang. And after that, after I finished, I worked for a year to have some savings and then I went back to Wudang and I knew I was going to stay for two years, which I did in the end. And I was leaving the programs, translating. So it was full on. I was probably a, a 12, 14 hour day, seven days a week for whenever the programs were running. Wow. And you were back at the Five Immortals Temple? Straight back to Five Immortals Temple, yeah. Okay. And can you kind of paint a picture of what the, the scene is like there? So it's, an, uh, it's far away from the from a bigger city. Well, the bigger city is, I think it's 10 million greater area. And that's in Hubei and the, and the city is Cheyenne. It's famous for its lorries really, for its trucks. And so you take a small bus, you get to a, a village, which interestingly is called Bailin, which are the same characters as Berlin, but then it's pronounced as Berlin. <laughs> and you see on the pharmacies, you see Berlin pharmacy, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and from that small village, you, you go up, you take another, you take a motorbike, or when the groups are big enough, you would take a van to a very, a, a very small village. So there are probably a hundred people living in there. And these are really sort of um, country folks. So they don't speak Mandarin or proper Mandarin, Putonghua. They speak their local dialect, very hard to understand. And from there, you take a walk up. Now it's stairs. It used to just be a, a dirt path. And it's, it goes to a forest. And eventually you... You end up, you do the, you, you end up the last staircase, and there's the temple complex, which is actually not so small. It has quite a few facilities for people to sleep, and it has a different temple halls dedicated to different deities, and then it has another temple on the on the peak with a magnificent view into the valley and on the other side to the river or the reservoir. It's called the Yellow Dragon Reservoir. Okay, and so you mentored during your time there under Li Shufu. Is that correct? Yes, I, I took over the translation role because the person, Jim, who was doing it before he wanted to go home and become a paramedic. So I, I sort of exchanged roles and then I was translating. It's mostly live translation and it's very, very tiring because you have to listen to every single word and you have to get it right live. And it's a different tiredness. I cannot describe it. it. It does something to your brain where you fatigue and it's, it's very different to doing push-ups or anything physical because I've trained physically for eight hours and it's very, very different. How did you develop the skill set and the knowledge to translate Chinese in it seems like such a short period of time? I had some basics because when I was hurt in Shaolin for a month, I actually, I actually had an, a Chinese teacher. He wasn't very good, but I definitely think it helped. And by the time I left Shaolin, I could order food, I could order train tickets, I could have conversations. And then when I went back to Five Models Temple, I came there in winter and I knew I had to really put my foot down and study a lot. And I don't think I improved that much in winter, but once we started with the translation, because let's say if I lived in China in a city, I would have a language class, let's say 
five hours a day. So I would learn Chinese for five hours, think Chinese five hours, but I was translating. So I had to think Chinese 14 hours nonstop. I was looking up words. And at that time there was no pleco. So you would just be flicking through dictionaries all the time. And you made sure you remembered it because you didn't want to do that again. It would take way, way longer. And doing live translation is the, in my opinion, the fastest way to improve in the language. And I've seen it with two other people just by doing live translations. Your vocabulary goes through the roof. You have to, it's so, it's so such a vast array of words you have to learn on a daily basis. Who were you translating? Who was I translating for? Yes. For, for Li Shifu. So Li Shifu okay. doesn't, doesn't speak English. And I think it's actually one of the strengths that he speaks in Chinese because you don't lose a lot of the concepts so much through, through translation. Once, once teachers speak English, they, it's often simplified in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And who was he teaching to? And what was he teaching? So these, these were two groups of, he was teaching two groups of foreigners. Mm -hmm. So there are groups and courses running throughout the year. And they're very different. That could be internal alchemy, that could be Kung Fu or Kung Fu, that could be Tai Chi, that could be Qigong, that could be Taoist healing, that could be the I Ching or Feng Shui. So they would enroll to a course, come to China. The courses have run for different lengths. That could be anything from a week to two months. And then they stay for the time at the temple. We eat together. It's very communal. We're almost like a, we are a family. You're just with each other all the time. And then it's, um, depending on the course of mixture, it's, it could be just theoretical classes or it could, could be physical classes. Like for the Kung Fu, it's a lot more physical and very little mm -hmm. theoretical. What was the most attractive or some of the most attractive disciplines to you or teachings? I would say the Taoist medicine always, because you're on a mountain with all the flowers, your that course is usually, well, you can, you can collect stuff at any given time at, in any season. And it would be, we would, we would collecting, we were collecting herbs. We would buy very little from the pharmacy. We tried to get as many herbs and plants and leaves and flowers from the mountain. So you would go on a, on a herb hunt and digging it, digging them out, concocting them. So we would be operating with fresh, fresh ingredients, which was, which is very different, very interesting. So I'm not the best recognizing dried herbs, but I'm actually quite good recognizing the few hundred on White Horse Mountain. Which is actually pretty much the opposite of what the typical Chinese medicine student learns. They exactly. typically see heard, the dried herbs. Yes, I know about one course in Taiwan where they take you to the mountain and collect, collect herbs. So what are some of the fundamentals of Taoist medicine? So Taoist medicine is actually not, um, it's quite a modern term, but it includes things that are not part of Chinese medicine. That would be, for example, invocation, and talismans that you that you write with calligraphy and then you burn them and then you place them in water and there's a certain procedure you have to go through in order to use it it's not something you can just use on a whim so it, it's preceded by 49 days of very specific cultivation tell me more about that so if it's if this ceremony of sorts is preceded by 49 days of cultivation is the therapy the 49 days of cultivation or is the therapy the final ceremony or a bit of both? I would say it's more the final ceremony. It's more you purify and you actually connect. So you open the, you open a, a medium or a channel to actually use these powers. And in order to do that, you have to follow those strict rules. And once you establish that connection and you also produce the talismans through, I actually you're right, it's a bit of both because you make the talismans 
throughout that time too. And you burn some, but you always keep some, which you can then later use. And you need an altar and have to be in the altar. So they're um, instilled with the powers of the, of the deity of the altar as well. Okay. What are some examples of the talismans that are made? Of the, it's a, it's a specific talisman for a specific disease. So it has a specific character at the top, which might be rain. And then it has a specific, specific one at the bottom. Like they're not, they don't have each individual names. Okay. So this is the calligraphy? This is the calligraphy, yes. And calligraphy. It's okay. ideally done with um, cinnabar, cinnabar ink. Okay. Which, um, yeah, you might, like some people might be a bit outraged because uh, a lot of people think cinnabar straight up is toxic, but it's actually only toxic if you heat it up and then you intake it. And I've had, I've tried to find someone who, who takes me to a mine here because I wanted to see how it's actually collected and harvested. And I got someone pretty much threaten, threatening me. I only want to do it very legal. Someone actually to take me there and explain the process and maybe show me. I, I don't know the process. I didn't research it on Google. I wanted to see it. And I was threatened that if I go onto a mine, I actually trespass the queen's property and um, they'll take me to court. I was just um, unnecessary because I didn't want to break the law at all in the first place. Yeah. But it's it's that where people see it as poisonous. So once you burn the the burn it into ashes, that talisman it's absolutely safe. And I've taken it myself, and I don't think I have any heavy metal poisoning from it either. And I know I know people that coat the pills as well and take it. Okay, so well, let's back up before we get there. I want to go back to these forty nine days, and I actually want to go back to basically day zero. Is this a conscious choice that someone is making to go on is it a healing journey is that what i can call it the 49 days a healing journey yeah it's a purification journey a purification. More than a healing, but but the purification okay. will include some healing as well okay so someone makes a decision that they want to they want to go on this purification journey yes very much so and you have to choose a a good time and a good place so obviously you're not disturbed because otherwise you would have to start from scratch again Okay, and so what does it look like during these 49 days? Like, are, are you alone in a cave on a mountainside and not seeing people for 49 days? Or is this something you can do in your normal life and you just have to set aside time? They're different, they're different ones too. So uh, I guess we've been given a requirement that's a bit more lax so we can actually potentially do it. But ideally, so when Li Shifu done it before, he was pretty much gone in his room for 49 days. You would not see him. I wasn't there at the time, but I know that too. And if you're in a cave, there's just no no stimulus that could potentially stop you from purification. But for the in, in, you do it in the temple setting because you have the altar which is set up, and you do it usually in the morning when everyone is sleeping, and it contains a lot of recitation of different invocations or incantations, burning off of the of some talismans, drinking some talismanic water things like that so it takes i think about an hour and a half for some of them okay so this is every day during the 49 days absolutely you have to do it every day you cannot miss with single day and is there is an hour and a half kind of the average commitment per day or are there other things during the day necessary as well so with these requirements we still the the courses were run just normally throughout the day as well so you would have that set aside time but as you said the, the cave would be would be a, a step above that 
Mm-hmm. And then are there sp- certain practices that you are given to do during each of these 49 days? Not specifically, no. It's really, they call it a, a sacrificial practice or a sacrificial refinement, what you really do there. So I guess the, the word sacrifice has a bit of a bad connotation in some of what the Greeks and the Romans have done. But this is really what it's called. So you, you're really burning a lot of incense too. It has a very religious aspect to it. Is there a lot of meditation during this? Is that what the invocations are? Is... Um, you, if you call an invocation a meditation, then yes. But okay. uh, this is part of the course anyway. So every course has meditation in the evening for at least an hour. And turn alchemy two hours at night. Okay. And then after 49 days of this and during, are you, personally, I presume you've done this, are you experiencing changes within yourself during this time? So here's the interesting thing. I actually haven't done it because okay. I, didn't, I didn't feel ready. I've seen other people do it, but um, I, I wasn't ready. I didn't feel ready. And I was running the courses, so my mind was way too scattered. And I knew if I did do it during the time, it wouldn't yield res- the result I wanted. Okay. Are people in general experiencing changes during those 49 days? Oh, I think it's very, very powerful, mm-hmm. definitely. And I know, I've, I've seen people do a ceremony afterwards for other people. Mm-hmm. And if it's called a purification journey, what are you purifying? You're purifying yourself from everything you really accumulated over your, over your lifetime. And that's not only toxins that you go get in through the, through the food. These are also toxins in your thoughts. So with the Taoist medicine, it's a lot about thoughts and your, the, the cultivation of your inner character. If you don't have that, and if you're an angry person and you pretty much hate the world or hate yourself, then there's no point to do it for 49 days or for 10 years. You really, and I think that's the reason why you don't have so many practices going on throughout the day because you already practice a lot throughout the day. You're with Li Shifu, you're receiving his teachings, you're doing Qigong, you're doing Tai Chi, you're doing cultivation the entire day. And when you do something wrong, he tells you straight away. For most adults, they don't get told off unless you have really good friends who just say, you know, this is just off. And then you're in a very fortunate position. But for most people, you just do whatever you do and you think it's right. But when once you learn with Lishifu, he just tells you straight straight up and he corrects you all the time when you have done, done something that is of any selfish nature. Like if you're told to go to the city to take people to the bank and you complain about it, that's already a sign that you're placing yourself above them and you're not willing to help them. So you're lacking compassion, in other words. And that's sort of also supported by stories he tells. There's a, a really good story about Lu Dongbing, one of the founding fathers, and he was given the skill to turn stone into gold by his master, Zhong Li Quan. And he asked him, will this last forever? And he's like, no, after 100 years, the stone, the gold will turn back to stone. And then Lu Dongbing declined the skills. He said, I don't want it because this person who has the gold will end up with a stone. That's a very unfair thing to do, even if it's in 100 years. So what do you take away as the moral of that? I take the moral. The moral of that is really that you have to think far ahead of what is compassionate and what isn't. Because, of course, you could say it would really benefit this generation because most people don't live 100 years and this person will be rich. But that's just short-sighted. Okay. So there's, there's, there's many different layers to compassion and it becomes a very tricky thing too when you see a lion wanting to eat, eat an antelope are you going to save the, the antelope and maybe the lion starves? Mm-hmm. I want to 
finish off his purification journey, but I'm still curious. So what happens then at the end of the 49 days? You mentioned some burning of the talismans, but then you also mentioned taking some substances. So by the end of it, you, you still have to do the practice, but you have to do it less and less frequently. So you don't have to do it every day. You can, you can do it once a week. And then later on, you can do it once every two weeks, but you still have to keep it up and keep doing it. And so if you were to treat someone, it would be with a talisman, which is then burned, and then you drink the ashes. But there's also, like they call them mudras, or they're really hand seals that you have to do on top of the water. Again, to instill the water with a certain power of certain deities to do with healing. And then the patient drinks that water, and that water has become medicine specific to the ailment. Wow. So it's it's almost like a homeopathically charged energy medicine then. Is that somewhat accurate? I wouldn't use homeopathy because I think that's a, a microscopic amount yeah. where this is really this is full on. Okay. Like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider you could you could phrase it that to make it more accessible for Western, absolutely, but I think it's it's really the real it's real deal. It's it's full of energy. Okay. And you only can you're only successful if you are pure and sort of the the deity and spirits accept you as a vessel and have to be you, using to be using them. Have you personally witnessed some pretty powerful reactions to this? The ceremonies I've seen not directly, but I've seen so with the water, and this is a story that I witnessed firsthand. I didn't follow the person to the toilet, but I trust that she spoke the truth. She came in heavily constipated. And we're sitting by the fireplace because it was autumn or winter. So it gets very cold. There's no heating at all. It's just the fireplace. You move between bed and fireplace. And this um, girl had severe constipation. So Lishu forgets a, a cup with water, half full, and he uses his sword fingers. And he drew a talisman on the water and gave, her, gave it to her to drink. And she drank it. I don't believe the water tasted any different. And she went the same night six times to the toilet to get rid of, to get rid of it all. Wow. And she couldn't believe it. And it's, um, yeah, I don't think it's um, very, that's really the, the most impressive I've, I've ever seen in terms of, of treatments. And are there any other, you mentioned all this herbal collection you were doing, are there any purification herbs that are taken during any of this process? No, there are, there are not, no. And the, about... the idea of, sort of detoxification is not so prevalent. We sometimes did it in the, in spring with um, certain herbs like Qinghao. But in generally, you have to find the, the it's, it's down to the individual and their individual pattern. Like I know we in the West, we like to give something for headache. But it's, as you know, it's a, it's a pattern that we have to treat and not a stencil of headache. Right. And is there any focus on nutrition at all? No, I would say the the diet is very clean anyways because it's vegetable based. It's all vegetarian. Yeah. Which and another reason for that is because if you take the, in the energy energetic field of an animal, it takes you longer to get rid of it, and it also makes your the other other things you shouldn't eat during that, which includes spices and garlic and the onion family, because it's all stimulating and you want to be as still as possible, okay. as tranquil and calm. And if you're spicy, you're eat a lot of spicy food, your intestines will complain and your heart rate goes up and you get heat rising to your face as well. 
to your head. Mm. Tell me about some of the other teachings there. And in particular, a couple really intrigued me. One is alchemy and another one is swordsmanship. So the internal internal alchemy is the is the most full on course out of them all, and honestly, I think it's the most important. I it runs for about ten days usually, just over a week, and it's all theory. So in the mornings we do qigong. So just to give you an idea about the schedule, you get up very early because it's, it we usually run in the summer. So you get up at five to catch the sunrise because it's a form of qigong you have to do with the rising sun, with the red ball because before the sun gets too strong. And then you have theory classes in the morning, you have lunch, you have theory classes in the, in the afternoon, and then you do have two hours of meditation in the evenings. And so this alchemy class really takes you through two parts. One is the character cultivation. So it focuses on even things like the Tao Te Ching, it focuses on the Yin Fu Jing, on the 48 barriers. And the second part is about the, the, the Ming Gong or the in an, the life destiny gong and that's really about transforming your body and that's he goes into the details and it's it's still very hard it's you you have to really get your teeth stuck into the material because there's there's so much to it and there's so many scriptures as well so we discussed in particular a scripture called Dachan Jiao, which is the essentials to the shortcut of the great achievement and he explains how to do it, but it's not something where you, where you just think this is very easy. Anyone can do it. It's still very, very hard. And the analogy they use is if you think of, a, of an ox and all its hairs, if they're all cultivators, only two will potentially make it, which are the horns. So the horns rep represents the successful cultivars, cultivators on an ox. Hmm. And with the internal alchemy courses, are they strictly, would it be primarily people with a scholarly interest who are coming to do this? Or are they people who are looking at inner transformation for themselves? I think most, yes, the second. I believe most of it is the second. And I honestly think even doing the course once is not enough. So I've done it three times and there was always new stuff coming up. And even stuff that I actually thought was essential. And because it's also done, because it's so so steeped in Chinese culture, the more you know about Chinese, the easier it is really to grasp when it comes to the stems and the branches and things that are used or the analogies. Not so much in, in that course, it doesn't talk so much about the, about the trigrams and hexagrams, but it does come up where you have water above, fire below, GG after completion things like that. So if you're familiar with the I Ching, it helps. Otherwise, this, this, it's, it's hard to grasp for the first time. But it's really, it's the goal is to become an immortal. That's really the end goal. And it's, and it, it's made very clear in the alchemy course that it takes maybe 80 years to refine your character, and then you can transform your body. If you haven't refined your character, you can't do it. And it's not so much sequential because you can do, you prepare. So that's what's meant by, by the dual cultivation of inner nature and life destiny but you really need to work on that it, it's like grinding the needle from a from a metal rod you grind it down to a needle that's what what needs to happen first okay and it mentions it a lot in the scriptures too because i'm now translating the whole scripture 
that if you just have a hair of selfishness or a hair of a human heart mind or a hair of desire for anything, you can't do it. You fall back and then it goes the next time and you will waste all your previous gong, your previous merit or skill. Wow. And then there are, down, there are pitfalls on the way too, which are really important, which I do want to mention. So there's two spirits, the yin spirit and the yang spirit. And along the way, you will get skills. And these are, could be skills like telekinesis, te telepathy. And people think that's a great skill and they use it. And Li Shifu the the metaphor of a child in a toy store. Once you put a child in a toy store, it never wants to go out and you get stuck there and you never go to a higher level and you never get to that young spirit because you just... He just got caught in the yin spirit, which is, is which feels like a great skill, but it's not the highest. And the, the easiest way to explain the difference between a yin and a yang spirit is a yin spirit can travel to a market and it can observe the scene, but it can't actively grasp things and take them back. Whereas the yang spirit could go to a market, buy cucumbers, a kilo of them, communicate with a lady and take those cucumbers back. It's <laughs> a good metaphor. It's actually, it's not just a metaphor. It's actually, there's a story about this between Zhang Boduan and a Buddhist monk, which I've translated in the 49 barriers of cultivating the Tao. And I found that story later. I was like, this is exactly what he was talking about. And obviously Li Shifu knows the story, but he just made right. it more relatable going to the market and buying cucumbers. Yeah. And these things that you're talking of, as far as these, this progression and the, the teachings and the learnings, this is... Is this over an 80-year span, really, what you're talking about? The requirement that one must cultivate these things for about 80 years before they then become immortal? So the 80 years is just for your, for your inner nature cultivation. And then the transformation of the physical body is a lot faster if you've achieved that. And 80 is just a number because Zhang Sangfeng started really training at 83. It could be a lot faster. It could never happen. But it just gives you an idea of how you sort of divided the inner nature cultivation and the life destiny cultivation. They're no, by no means the same time span. And the problem in the West is a lot of people, they get really hooked on this microcosmic, macrocosmic orbit, and they just want to know how to become an immortal, but they really have little idea that it doesn't work if you don't have the inner cultivation refinement to begin with. What are some specific examples of the inner alchemy, the inner cultivation? The inner cultivation really places all the focus on love, compassion. It also means that you go out of, out of your way to help others, that you have no selfish interest. It also includes that you understand, I guess in a way you understand the purpose of money, but you don't get attached to it. You're an honest person. Nisha for once went back all the way to the market because he he was given back two, two kwai, which is nothing, like two, two yuan is really nothing to return right. it to the person. So it's, it's, it's something that we, I guess, all fall short on a daily basis, including myself. So the work is maintaining this level of love and compassion all the time, never faltering from it. All the time, yeah. And you have to really scan yourself, and that's why it's really important to have a teacher, because he tells you when you've gone wrong. Okay. Tell me about the swordsmanship. So the sword course is really interesting too, because the, the main sword form is done on a similar to Bagua. So you do it on an eight for most of the time. <clears throat> and it's a very long sword. It's a straight sword. 
And you almost like he, he explains it that you do it, you walk on a talisman because you walk on that age. And there's there are drills to it as well. It's very difficult to use the sword because it's an extension, it's a weapon of your arm, and you have to really make it become part of your body. So it's not you and the sword, it's just you. And they they say you start with a metal sword and then you go back to a wooden sword and then eventually you do no sword. You can actually just use your fingers and it will be the same. What would be the same? You could watch that person and you could just see the sword and you would be like, yeah, they actually don't need the sword anymore. Okay. Watching them during the... The sword form, yeah. The form. Mm -hmm. It's almost like with the herbs. You use a lot of herbs, but once you really have established higher powers you don't need herbs they say you can just grasp grass and give it to your patient and it will have the same effect right and so is the sword form just another means of not just is it another means then of of internal cultivation in a sense i would say so i think the sword really comes from from expelling demons to begin with, like even on the sword, you have the, the seven stars or the big dip, dipper on it. And it is it is almost like a, a ritual. I very much think so. So like it's this was not too... It's Qigong with a sword, so to speak. Maybe maybe call it more Tai Chi because tai chi. Qigong okay. usually doesn't doesn't move so much. Okay. In that in that pattern. It's usually done more stationary. Okay. But it's it's also walking meditation. It's 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 absolute, just becoming one with the with the movement. And a lot of the movements of the I don't want to say exercise, but parts of it are from a religious nature. So it's like bowing down to the to the deities or the jade emperor, and you and you're using it in, in a certain position that would be the same as you do it in front of the altar. Okay. Let's bring some of your translation back into this, and also tie it in with the work of Wang Feng Yi. I know I've spoken about Wang Feng Yi with Heiner Fruhauf and with Sabina Wilms, all German translators mm -hmm. like yourself. You translated a discourse on transforming inner nature, which was written by Wang Feng Yi. Can you talk about that particular work and what drew you to it and the teachings of Wang Feng Yi? So basically... It's written in the book as well in the intro. So I was sitting in the in the common room and there's always a pile of books. And these are usually books gifted to Li Shifu by his friends. And he doesn't really talk so much about them. They're sort of stacked there. And there was this very tiny book. It's almost like, or it is a book that is given out for free at temples. And it had very big letters. And the, the thing that drew me to it, funnily enough, was they were written and simplified. So my traditional isn't very good. It's getting better, but it wasn't very good at the time at all. And I read a little bit and I literally could see some of the teachings of Li Shifu being very much reflected, almost like a, it was really not overlapping. It was what he was teaching. So I took this book. It had no author written on it. It had no intro, it had just the main text. And I sat down in the sun by the top temple, the Guanyin temple, the Bodhisattva of compassion in the sun. And I was just reading a few, a few pages. I had my phone to check some characters, but I didn't really need much much help because it was so clear. And if then I had the idea of publishing a book really about the inter internal alchemy part of it. And I decided that this little black book, I still didn't know who it was by, was very good for the section of 
in a nature cultivation. So I then decided I needed to do it properly. So I needed to find out who's the author and do some research. And then it turned out and then it just opened this box of the work that Sabine Wilms and Hannah Fruhoff have done on it. And there's quite a bit of research and then there are a couple of other papers. And I was like, wow, this is actually a person who people know. I had no idea. And that's really where it started. And then it turned out to become bigger and bigger and then it could be a book on its own, which it then in the end turned to. The message was so clear and it was, it almost like, it almost felt like Ishifu had quoted from it, which he didn't, but it, it was in line of what I was learning at the time. And for someone who hasn't listened to either of those other two episodes with Heiner or Sabina, what is, I guess, the general premise of the teaching of Wang Fangyi? The general premise is that emotion is responsible for all your illnesses and diseases. And if you treat the emotion, if you treat the heart, if you treat the emperor, you can cure anything. And that's very fascinating because it can be hard for people to really come to terms that when they sprain a back, it could have to do that they had an argument or they have ongoing arguments with their spouse. Because we just tend to think, well, I moved quickly and my back wasn't ready, so I put my back out. But then you could argue most people wouldn't have hurt their back if they had done the identical movement. So you probably carry some tension, which could come from the arguments. So it is very much Chinese medicine in some respects where it talks about the emotions as cause of disease, but it says it's the emotions for everything. And the treatment itself is more dialogue, isn't it? Yes. The, the, the treatment is not medicine. It's not massage or anything. It's for me, it's also in this, he tells stories and I believe he, the reason for that is because he was treating peasants and they, they weren't academic. Most of them are probably illiterate like himself. So a story is the fastest way to the heart. Someone, uh, actually a Catholic priest said before, and I believe that that to be true, he would be telling the story and be almost like you open up the mist and people could see through it, through all the cloudiness and be like, yeah, I need to just remove these arguments at home. I need to treat my, my wife or my husband better. And then this will not happen again and also remove any tension that I have in my back that will prevent me from healing from this. Mm -hmm. And it's really a very empowering sort of teaching because the, the person who needs the healing is no longer in a victim position, but instead is empowered to take full control of the healing process in part by taking on all of the responsibility and not putting that responsibility out to others, not blaming others. Yes. And he, he's, he's the active agent. It's almost like I give you, he's given the tools, like this is where it came from. It's down to you to do something about it. Whereas we, what often the case that people like to have a pill, just give me a pill and it's better, but there is a learning process in everything. So everything happens for a reason, I believe, even though it's often hard to see at first sight. And if you're given a pill, you just rely, just keep giving me those pills instead of being like trying to highlight where you've gone wrong on the journey. Yes. And so the discourse on transforming inner nature, it includes this little booklet. Are there other things in this book that you created beyond what was in that small booklet that you translated? The booklet was the whole, was the whole work. So I've written, a, I wrote an introduction and some footnotes, but I didn't feel it it needed that many. Probably now going back, I would add another 200, 300 footnotes, but at the time, yeah, it seemed very clear to me. And it's it's actually quite a, a short work. Was this your first, your first official 
translation or book? Yeah, so I was working on, on I always have like several things that I'm so, sort of working on, but this was the first where I wanted to see it through to the end. And it, there's a lot involved because once you decide to publish it, you have to make sure it's as correct as you can get it because it's going to be out there and you can't call it back. And did you have that clarity from the very beginning once you decided this was a book you wanted to work with that you actually wanted to see it to publication, not just translate it, but to publish it and make it available? Absolutely, yeah. I, I wanted it to be available for people because I thought it was something very valuable in it. And did you try to publish that through any existing companies or did you immediately have the idea to set up Purple Cloud Press and publish it through that? No, it was published through Valley Spirit okay. for about two years. And then I bought myself out of the contract and started Purple Cloud Press also with the idea of really making Taoist and Chinese medicine titles available and publishing other authors' authors' work, but also for me to publish my own works. How long ago did you start that? That was three years ago. Okay. And so, I mean, it's, that's a, a big commitment to start a publishing company. When you said originally it was published by Valley Spirit, is that Stuart Alvey Olson? That's and, correct, yeah. Okay. Great. What was your impetus for deciding to create your own press? So first of all, it's actually not so much work. It's much easier now because it's print on demand. So all you need is a finished manuscript and PDF, a book cover, you upload it. And from there, you just have to provide your, provide your bank details. If you were going, let's say with Amazon, because they do everything else. If a title gets lost, they have to, the customer deal with Amazon. They don't deal with you. You don't have to go to the post office. You don't have to answer emails. It's all done. So it's a lot easier now. Mm -hmm. And the main reason really is that there are so many scriptures that haven't been made available. And it's really a shame because there are capable people, but it seems like most people want to translate in the Taoist world, the Tao Te Ching. And that's why we have a few hundred different versions where it really not doesn't contribute much to it but there's so many scriptures which would deserve an English translation. So my idea was to find a way of really making all the royalties available to the authors so they would be encouraged to translate more because it takes between a year and two years if you're working a 40-hour job to do translations on the site. And if you get 10%, which some companies pay, pay out of the royalties, you get nothing. So you, you, might, even not, you might not even end up with a, a dollar an hour for your work. So my publishing right. house really was intending to give the bulk to the authors and make them feel sort of appreciated and, and, and make it also a little bit of, a, of an income, of a side income to what they're already doing. So you've set up an incentive structure so that people are choosing to spend their valuable time helping to translate and to preserve these ancient texts as opposed to thinking, well, there's not enough not enough incentive in this for me to do it. Yes, and you could say the same thing about Chinese medicine. So if you look at Sun Tzu Miao, the, the king of medicine, like his works, the only, the, only, the only books that have been translated are by Sabine Wilms, and that's on gynecology, one volume and two on pediatrics. And now she's working on a fourth one, but that's a very small part of what he's published in his thir two 30 volume pieces. Hmm. So the question is, why does no, why isn't there like a millionaire who thinks this cultural knowledge needs to be preserved and dispensed 
60,000 on someone, on an academic who is able to translate it and say, okay, I want to have this book published in a year. But it, for some reason, it doesn't happen, which is, which is a bit strange. And tell me about the other books. You have two others that you've translated, is that right? The Arts of Taoism and the 49 Barriers? And the Taishang Gan Ying Pian, so the, that's a fourth, a fourth one, which is um, a Shan Shu or Book of Merit. Mm. So my teacher, the Treatise on Action and Response, that's how it's translated, of, of Taishang Lao Jun, or of Taishang, which is the name for Lao Tzu. Okay. And so that, that was really done, that was really on, um, my teacher told me to do it when I was there last time. And we just sat down and he, he pretty much wrote a commentary. So it doesn't include the original because the, there's, there are good originals out there. But he translated, or he had me translate a commentary and he wanted it to be available for free. And I told him, well, if I put it on Amazon, I can't, I pay for it myself. So the price is set that I literally earn not a single cent. Like I earn nothing from the sales of it. On top of that, the PDF is available. You can, you can download that from the site as well. And is that the same treatise that Stuart Alvey Olson translated, The Actions and Retributions? Yes, that's the other word for it. But he actually translated I don't have the original translation. He translated just... the original text and you did a commentary. Yes, a commentary by my teacher. Okay. And tell me about the other two, the arts of Taoism. Let's start with the arts of Taoism. So the arts of Taoism just has been published five days ago. Oh, congratulations. And... Thank you. And that was that the story behind it is that I wanted to release a Kindle of like 50 pages about fasting, Taoist fasting, because it's part of the internal alchemy is also you do fasting for five days or three to sometimes three days. And I wanted to talk about it because even the word fasting is a problem. And if you translated it, translate as abstention from grains, which is also not correct because it really talks about all foods and requirements. And then there's different levels at different stages. Are you just doing it to get rid of some toxins? Or are you doing it as part of secluding yourself in a cave? And I thought it, it would be very fast, turn around maybe three months and wanted to have my first Kindle out there. And then just one step led to the next. I was thinking, what do you do during fasting? Because you do lose energy. You don't want to study. You don't want to sing the scripture so much or do scripture study. You can meditate. So that led me to writing a chapter on meditation. And then another form of meditation is sleeping meditation. So that was my third chapter. So it led me into Chen Tuan or Chen Qing Yi, which is the sleeping immortal and a couple of his texts. And then a lot of foreigners are very interested in dreams. So during a lot of the courses, people ask, what does this and that dream mean? So I wanted to highlight dreams from a Taoist perspective, but also a little bit from a medical perspective like a certain dream means a, th a certain thing so you can actually diagnose so then i had four chapters and an appendix and it blew up to 614 pages 614 yeah wow so it's equal it's as big as the, the 49 barriers of cultivating the dao it's just a smaller format it's a six by nine but that was wow. originally it was 50 pages kindle and, and how long did that take you to produce it took a year and a half and that, that's really because I kept adding and adding things. And sometimes I would see something in a Facebook group and all of a sudden I'd have this new text about dreams. And I'm like, I have to include this. Like, why would I come across this now? And then I would, it, it would just add and add on. And then eventually 
became that big. And is it done now, or do you think you're going to have other add-ons? Of course, I guess one of the 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 beauties and also challenges of self-publishing is you can always just submit a new manuscript, can't you? Exactly, and it doesn't cost me a cent either. No, this is finished. I found another text. So I was like, if I had found this before, I would have included it. But no, I have to, like even my editor, so I have a, an English proofreader too. He was paid by words. At some stage where the 49 barriers told me you need to stop because you can always add, which is really praiseworthy because he gets paid for it. And he was literally just like, you need to stop paying me for this because you need to stop. <laughs> which I thought was, I, lis I listened to him, but I, I started adding and adding and yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's never yeah. ending. And let's talk about the 49 barriers of cultivating the Tao. Just to begin with that, the 49 days of purification we were talking about before, is there any resonance with the 49 barriers? The numerology is there. 49 is a very, very important. And there's actually, it's, it's mentioned in the Bible too, where you, where you, do, where you do something for 49 days. And it's seven, seven times seven. So seven is quite a high young number. It's not the highest. It's not nine, but it, it, that factors in. It's also when you have, when someone dies, you do a ritual for 49 days. Okay. So what are the 49 barriers? The 49 you need, barriers. You don't need to list them all, but tell me a bit <laughs> about the book. So the 49 barriers is really the, the, the number one scripture about your inner character. It really takes you through something that sounds very basic. If you tell someone, be compassionate, like, like in the Bible, love your neighbor. You think that's very easy. I do that. And then you realize you actually don't. And even if it's just a thought, so you might do something, but you might think something else, or you might have a little bit of resentment doing it. Let's say someone asks you to get something for them and you have resentment. That's already a sign that you're falling short by that one fine hair, as they always say. So the 49 barriers really prepares you. For me, it's a manual of how to become a better person, how to conduct yourself from a Taoist point of view. And it touches on some internal alchemy. But my editor was often asking, like, what do you mean by this? And I'm like, I don't really want to go into detail about that because that's not what the book is about. And I don't want to steer people away of asking too many questions that are not relevant for that particular aspect that I want to highlight. If you had two books and one was saying, inner character cultivation and the other one is like becoming an immortal i'm sure 99 percent would be like how to become an immortal i don't want to do the other stuff it's too hard so what types of things are in the 49 barriers the 49 barriers it talks about your desire it talks about your sexual lust it talks about your being selfless it talks about having a master to follow so it really it's not it's not chronological you could almost open it up and see what barrier you fall onto and make that barrier, I think, something to follow for even a month. Mm -hmm. Like I thought, I, I actually think it gives you almost a year where you can work on it a week and where you can not, not highlight and not state what you do well, but actually find where you haven't been able to really meet the requirements. And would you say that all 49 of these have contemporary applications? And I asked that because when I was reading Actions and Retributions, uh, Stuart Alvey Olson's translation, there's a list, a large part of the book is, is the Actions and Retributions written out in a list format, basically. And I found there were a number there that 
were actually more comical than really relevant today because they were written so long ago and had a very different, I guess, cultural meaning to them. Is that the case with Can the Can you give me an example? I just, I just wonder if it's like something patriarchal where they're like men shouldn't, shouldn't see women or if it's something that we just don't have anymore in terms of cultural background. That's, this may take a moment, but just uh, let's see. So, for example, wrongly selling a daughter into a troubled marriage. Okay, so these are these are cultural concepts that certainly don't apply anymore. And with the 49 barriers, I don't think you would encounter something like that. And the the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about it is that there's a commentary. So I have the 49 barriers, which is the text edited by Li Shifu. And then I have his commentary. So in the commentary, he talks about very modern things like Trump, airplanes, and you can tell it's a commentary, but he really applies it and explains the barrier to a nowadays setting. So you find that these 49 are quite relevant then. They're all practical things that people can actually apply to their life. Absolutely. They're not so much but they are they are applied to your to your conduct and to your behavior so they're not things like you need to light incense three times a day it wouldn't be like that it would really yes. like these are the things you need to pay attention to to become a better person become a good person more along the lines of inner alchemy work in alchemy work but on the morality part of things yeah and on your on the virtues great how are things going at purple cloud press you have quite a number of very books. busy. Yeah. Tell me it's, about it. It's going to be the busiest, busiest year. So basically we've the first year I only had my title, which I bought myself out. And then the second year I had two titles, Michael's book, explanations of channels and points and the treatise on action and response. And then the following. So this year it's going to be, incredibly busy so there's still titles i'm hoping that we get alan's next installment of judging you out by the end of the year if everything falls into place um he's also like this man is very busy he's my gold dust he's also editing another work which is translated by nikita bushin which is called the duke of joe's interpretation of dreams and there is another book michael's second volume is coming out of the explanations of channels and points. And there's another book coming out by Will, which is about the eight extraordinary channels or the yin Tiao and the yang Tiao in particular, which is almost at the editing stage too. And there possibly or most likely will be a French, French translation of the 49 barriers by the end of the year. Fantastic. And the 49 barriers, as you mentioned, it's 600 plus pages, right? Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. a big format. It's a seven by 10. So it's, so this is a, that was a, a lot of work. Looking back, I would have split it. Mm, yeah. It is a tome. It's become a lot, a lot of work. And what has the response been to these works? Very good. Very good. Because I think there is a, there is a need for it to cover the basics and to also tie in classical works with practical works. I come from a very practical background. I didn't read a lot of scriptures before I went to China and not while I was in China. I was really taught by Li Shifu, but for me, it was very fascinating to look at these scriptures and find his words 
being reflected in the scriptures. So I like to talk about what he instructed and then find the scriptures to back it up, to show that this is not something that he invented. This has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Just like the story of the yin and the yang spirit, which Alan found, he was like, oh, this is the original story. And I was like, wow, I need to include this. This is fantastic. It's beautifully written. And it's actually one, yes. of, one of the bigger Tao scriptures as well. And why Purple Cloud Press? Why the name and what does that mean? So purple is very auspicious. So when you look at the guardian past, Yin Xi, he saw a purple cloud. Of, it actually says purple chi in the original. And he knew that someone very cultivated would arrive at the past. And that was Lao Tzu himself, who then later, he stopped him and said, you have to leave something behind. And he made him really leave the Tao Te Ching behind. And you have a temple in another reason. You have a temple in Wudang, which is called Zixiao Gong, which is the purple heaven palace purple heaven temple which is another reason and you have even even um, a star which is called the purple tenuity so purple is very prevalent in Taoism as an auspicious color and we've talked about some amazing scholars and translators of classical Chinese and Taoism from Heiner and Sabina Wilm, Stuart Alvey Olson, Livia Cohn have any of these people or anyone else inspired you in your work? I would say the major person that inspired me is Louis Comjaffi. I read quite a few of his books and I really like his translations and the partial Tao Te Ching he has written. And I communicated with him and he was actually happy to write a, a foreword to the Arts of Taoism, which I'm super happy and actually wrote it with a lot of quotes from Zhuangzi. Like it's hmm. incredibly well, well written. I just actually read it yesterday again. And the other person is Fabrizio Brigadio, who's done an amazing job on inter internal alchemy texts, very beautiful translations. I'm still hoping that he's going to do Gil Hong's The Master of Embracing Simplicity one day because he's done a, like a chapter of it and it's absolutely phenomenal. And we only have a very old translation today by James Ware, which instead of the Tao, it talks about God, and it has some very odd translation choices, but it was done in the 70s, I think. So these two people are really the major, major people I follow. And I read quite a bit of Livia Cohn too, I must say, and in specific, specifically when I read up about Chen Tuan as part of the Arts of Taoism, the Sleeping Immortal and Sleeping Gong or Sleeping Meditation. Yeah, well, she's amazing. So you sound ex like this these passions of yours would keep you extremely busy and yet you also have a clinical practice don't you yeah that's my bread and butter so i earn my living mostly as an acupuncturist because in new zealand it's government funded so for any traumatic injury you get 16 treatments of acupuncture for free and if the clinic doesn't have a surcharge then it's absolutely free some clinics charge between 10 and 70 dollars but the Purple Cloud Press is really not making any money because I spend so much. And once yeah. I make some money, I invest it into the next book. But that wasn't the intention. So I never thought that this would be what I make my living. So I'm actually very relaxed. I don't have competition with other people. Like any book that comes out, I'm happy about, especially when it's something that I planned because then I don't have to do it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in a very good position about that. Yeah. And you're back in New Zealand. Did that, uh, is that something that 
from your your college days you decided that uh, you liked it there and you wanted to go back? I've really pretty much just moved between New Zealand, China to see my teacher and then Germany to see my family. So my okay. base has actually always been in New Zealand. I never worked in Germany to this day. I don't have, I won't get welfare because I never worked for a year in Germany, even though I have a German passport and I lived there for 19 years. So I haven't fulfilled the requirements. So in that respect, New Zealand in terms of insurance as well, if I go back to Germany, I can't get insurance, but by law you have to get insurance. So it's a bit tricky. Okay. I don't know how that quite works. But in New Zealand, I've got public insurance and it's just from that respect also a yeah. place to live. And you spoke of this coverage for traumatic injuries where people get free treatments. Does that include mental, emotional or psychological injuries or just physical injuries? Just physical injuries. Sometimes they go hand in hand. If you have concussions, you might have a depression or something, but it creates some very weird scenarios that say you have, you wake up one morning and you can't open your mouth because you have a locked jaw. You don't get coverage because it's not traumatic. But if you go on a binge drinking and you fall over and you break your jaw, it's covered. Interesting. So it's, um, it's tricky. It's also, if you travel to New Zealand as a tourist and you sprain your ankle, it's covered. You haven't paid anything for it because every hundred dollars you pay one dollar into the funding you're covered as a as a foreigner but if it does happen outside of new zealand you're not covered even if you're a new zealander even if you're a new zealander hmm. well i guess there's certainly some benefits to having the coverage in some situations it, anyway absolutely a lot of people try acupuncture just because they don't have to fork out any of their own hard-earned money yeah naturally so it, op- it opens up a lot of it, op- it just makes people susceptible and to try acupuncture and because of that incentive in the culture are you finding that that's the majority of your clinical practice people who have traumatic injuries yes 99 percent. and do they normally continue once that free treatment period is ended or is that kind of the end of it until their next injury that's kind of the end of it until the next injury. But usually, so after the 16 treatment, you can apply for another 16. So you should really fix them within that. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of treatments. And yeah. you find that's kind of the culture of, of, of acupuncture in New Zealand. It's typically people going for these traumatic injuries. Yeah, that's the downside of it. So a lot of people associate acupuncture with traumatic injuries, where they're like, yeah, it helps with traumatic injuries, but that's the only thing it does. And people do have a herbal practice, but they never have purely a herbal practice. They always mm-hmm. do that accident scheme acc it's called mm-hmm. and so then the psycho-spiritual aspects and benefits of acupuncture are kind of lost unless you can tie those into the traumatic injury treatments yes you can tie that tie them in so that when someone comes in and they say well i sprained my ankle but then you find out they're on they have they're manic depressive you can certainly add points to that no one will ever tell you off so you can very much include it or they say i have very poor digestion you can still do that well again that's 16 treatments is more than most practitioners probably get in other countries with a patient so that's that's great well thank you johan that's very interesting i've really enjoyed getting to know you and getting to know some of your works i'm looking forward to actually getting some of those massive books and reading through them so thank you for doing that work i think i'm going to start with the 49 barriers but We'll see. It's, uh, they all sound very intriguing. 
Thanks for letting me share it. It's my goal is actually to make it very accessible. So even the tome of 614 pages, seven by 10 inches, it's only $33, which I consider that cheap given yeah. the three years it has taken. Yeah. Good for you. And thank you for all this work. Anything on the horizon for you or is it primarily more translations and publishing? The idea is really to find a place as well for Purple Cloud Institute, which is run by me and Daniel and have a physical place to teach because we learned a lot on the Taiji, So, Qigong side and then run courses. So it's really sort of a, a two-pronged aspect where you have the online platform, but you, we also want to have a physical place. And I think it probably will happen in the next two years. Tell me about like the that. Purple Cloud Institute. So the Purple Cloud Institute was founded at the same time that I founded my press because of it. It was really Daniel who started it in a way. And our idea is to preserve Chinese culture, Asian culture, martial arts. So it's three things, martial arts, Chinese medicine, and Taoism. And to create a platform. So currently on the webpage, it's over 200 articles for free. And the only thing that costs something are the books. And that's really for me to, to break even. Yeah. And then and the idea is to get something online up as well in terms of teaching materials for Chinese medicine and then have a physical place to teach people physical exercise that come from Asia. And who is Daniel? So Daniel is an acupuncturist, a herbalist, and he trained in Australia and China and he lived in China longer than me. I think close to maybe even close to 10 years and has trained with a, a lot of very exceptional people like Andrew Nugent Head, um, Wang Juyi, uh, the channel differentiation, done a yeah. lot of clinical work and is read a lot of classics and currently is um, focusing a little bit on the on uh, longevity exercises and Taoyin. Okay, and how did you guys meet? We met at the temple, like twice, at least once for a number of months. And that's where we really connected. And then he reached out to me and we decided to launch something together. And it's really good because it's very separated. I do the press side and he does the podcast side of it, similar to yourself. And, uh, and in the near future, hopefully a, a Purple Cloud TV with, um, video footage. Yeah. And the institute, the, the brick and mortar that you're hoping to set up, is that going to be in New Zealand, Australia, China? What do you have in mind? Uh, it looks like Australia. That's going to be Australia. Okay. And it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty, once you go outside of the cities, it's actually very feasible to, to get land and set something up. And often it has some sort of infrastructure or even a river or springs on it. So it's, it really you, will be exciting. Do you envision this as being something similar to the Five Immortals Temple in the sense that people will come and stay there and do five, 10-day courses with you guys? Yes. So I, it would be nice to have a, a way of even people staying longer on the property and having living quarters and make it more of a, a communal spirit and where you can really work on things rather than just doing a day or two, growing herbs, growing Chinese medicine. So it, it's, it, it should be similar. So the quality of the soil always plays, a, plays an important factor and seeing the sun because of the Qigong in the mornings. Right. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. I'm very keen on having some sort of forest because on, on the White House Mountain, there's juniper and pine trees. And yeah, I'm, I'm a forest person. Oh, that's very exciting. Good for you guys. I'm 
I'm interested in learning and hearing more about that and how it develops. I hope it comes along nicely for you. I'd like to visit there someday. Oh, cool. There will be an opportunity for sure. Yeah. Where, Johan, can people go to find more about you and your work? On the Purple Cloud Institute webpage. So www.purplecloudinstitute.com. Great. I'll put that in the show notes. Anywhere else you want to send them? Or that's that'll be the linking point to everything? Fiveimmortals.com. That's still a place? That's still a thing? It's still a thing. Probably been there for thousands of years, so I presume it's going to keep going. Yes. So at the moment, there's just no courses because of COVID, but you, there's a tremendous amount of, of knowledge on the webpage with incantations and all the different aspects that are taught and summaries and some good information. And do you go back I, from time to time? I've tried to go back every year. I just haven't been able for the last two years for obvious reasons, but I definitely go back every year. Great. There's so much to learn. As you know, it never stops. And there's just, I wish I had two lives or two days instead of one. <laughs> I'll become immortal. <laughs> I don't think you have to learn any more of these things once you become an immortal. <laughs> well, thank you again. This has been great fun. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and your willingness to come on the show and share this with our listeners. And thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Johan Hausen. For more about Johan and his translations, please visit purplecloudpress.com. For listeners of this podcast, he is generously offering support for anyone interested in self-publishing. Simply reach out to him via his website. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs including world's first study options, combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at PacificRimCollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, consider what your purification journey could look like. <laughs>